At first, I was really angry. And then I moved to feeling really sad. And then I moved to feeling inspired. Like, okay, well, let's fix this. Let me educate people. Let me share my experiences with people. Welcome to Joyful Sundays, a podcast delivering weekly insights, inspiration, and tools to live a more conscious, connected, and intentionally meaningful life. Join us as we go into the minds of some of the world's most inspiring leaders to discover the keys to unlocking your best self. In the midst of a global pandemic, there has never been a more important time to reflect on how we want to emerge, what we value, who we are at our cores, and how we want to reflect those North Star values in the lives we build post a global crisis. I'm your host, Jody Kovitz. Welcome back to Joyful Sundays, today for our 12th episode. I know, 12 episodes, I can hardly believe it. I'm so excited to speak with my friend, Avery Francis. Avery is an award-winning HR talent strategist that has been featured in HRD Canada's Hot List HR Professionals. With a focus on the tech industry globally, Avery's goal is to actively champion diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging by building workplace cultures that people want to be a part of. She's held roles at League and Wrangle.io. She founded Bloom and Sunday Showers and also founded The Bridge School and Ditto, Diversity and Inclusion Talks to Yo. Avery and I have been friends for a number of years. She was right there when I started Move the Dial in 2017. She's provided a ton of advice and friendship over the years. She's recently taken to Instagram in a meaningful way and has had a number of posts go viral. We're going to talk about that today. Avery, thank you for joining us. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm so pumped to be here, Jody. Before we get into our conversation, which I've been so looking forward to having, to start off, can you tell me about how you and your family and your partner are doing during this time, which has been, of course, so difficult over the last six months? Mm-hmm. We are surviving. So I haven't seen my partner in five months, going on six months. So it's been a long time. By the time I do see him, it will be half a year since I'd seen him physically. Can't even imagine how that feels, honestly. I think that I've just like pushed down the feeling of being so far away from him for this long. I think that it was really hard the first couple of weeks, but then I went into like this zone where I just acknowledged that there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do to change it. So I've been, I think, suppressing a lot of the heartache that I've been experiencing as a result of being so far away from him. And I think that on top of that, having these conversations around the Black Lives Matter movement and George Floyd's murder and COVID-19 and the fear that's induced as a result of just like everything that's going on right now. It's been a particularly challenging time to be long distance from a partner who doesn't identify the same as you do. We've been having a lot of really tough conversations and realizations and we're surviving. And I think overall, I'm feeling just really grateful to be in a position where, you know, my business has, has, has actually like thrived through this situation. You know, my family, they're all healthy. We have babies on the way. It seems like everyone that's close to me is having babies. I think that it's been an interesting time because the things that I took for granted before have really been put into laser focus for me. 
So it's been an amazing time of just like really kind of having this time to focus on the things that are important to me and realizing what those things are. And I think that because of all the distractions that were going on prior, I was traveling all the time. I was flying from one place to the next. I was meeting with clients, just like moving constantly. I think that the stillness that's come as a result of like, you know, what has been a really challenging time has been eye-opening. I so value you sharing that so authentically. Thank you so much for that. I think a lot about that concept when you talk about what matters most as being sort of our North Star values and how we build our house metaphorically on a foundation of what matters most to us. And sometimes in the busyness, it's easy to lose focus of those things and excited to talk to you about sort of how those have shifted for you. I'd love you to share with our listeners a little bit about Bloom. And I've been watching you and celebrating the growth of the company you started and all of the different work that you've been doing. We've been friends for a long time. For those of you listening who don't know that, it's really been beautiful to watch it. But for those who don't know you, can you talk a little bit about Bloom and what you do? Yeah, Bloom is my baby. (laughs) Bloom has been my escape from what were some pretty not so great workplace experiences. And I didn't necessarily know that I was creating this safe space for myself, but I have unintentionally done so, which has been really nice. It's interesting that I never knew that entrepreneurship would be the time when I would feel the most calm, the most safe, the most secure, and the most, I guess, at peace of with the work that I'm doing. Of course, there's things that come up and entrepreneurship can be challenging and hard, but to me, it doesn't compare at all to some of the experiences that caused induced quite a lot of stress for me working with some specific workplaces, which were really tough. So Bloom is a full service workplace design consultancy. And what we do is we help companies build equitable hiring systems, scale their teams, and then also offer inclusive workplace experiences. So we're on a mission to build the world's best workplaces. And I think we're doing a pretty damn good job at it so far. And we're just kind of trying to like just take over the world right now. We're trying to expand our services and work with different leading organizations uh, beyond the borders of Canada, which has been fantastic. It's so incredible, Avery, to watch it. And one of the things that I love and admire about you is just really how you bring such empathy to the work that you do and deeply listen and partner with folks you work with. You know, I've had the benefit and experience of learning with you and from you and unlearning with you. Can you talk a little bit about your approach? Because I think it's really unique how you work with clients. And I remember talking specifically about how you work differently than some other organizations that are focused in the HR space. A lot of our values are actually centered around what we would define as the different points of experiences that people have, whether it be, you know, going through the interview process or upon your first day on a job or when you're navigating, you know, working towards a promotion within your workplace. I've thought very carefully and specifically about the overall employment experience, which I think doesn't necessarily get enough credit for what it is. Like it takes up so much time in our lives. And I think we think so much about our home experience, right? We create these really comfy and cozy places for us to share with our loved ones and have friends over. And we think about the experiences that we have just beyond our home, but like where we spend our time, who we spend our time with. And I think that because of the power dynamic that exists, which is the fact that people go to work to earn money, to support themselves, their family members, their kids and children, et cetera, et cetera, and to build a life for themselves. I think that sometimes people waver 
in that area. And they're a little bit more flexible because of that very real power dynamic. But it's important to acknowledge that, you know, I think that companies have a moral obligation to create really fantastic workplace experiences for everyone. And that's a really hard thing to do and to navigate without training and coaching and support and resources and money and all the things. So we take a very, very empathetic approach to the work that we do. We have a couple of like non-negotiables that the team has been coached on. For example, we have a zero tolerance policy around not getting back to people after the interview process. So my team know right across the board that if I ever, and I have in the past received feedback from folks saying, Hey, I interviewed for this job. It's been three weeks and I haven't heard anything back from someone at Bloom. What's going on? That to me is like zero tolerance policy. There will be disciplinary action taken in the event that that happens. Everything that we do is based on the experiences that people have and, and the feelings that come up from those experiences. Building the offering that you have based on some of your own experiences, both in being a leader, but as well as being a team member, you know, is profound when you see it manifest. And talk to me a little bit about what initially sparked your interest in HR. How did you come to it in the first place? It's actually a funny story. My mom, and a lot of people don't know that she worked as uh, the VP of a really big, one of the world's largest recruiting firms for 25 years. So I feel like recruiting in HR is like in my bones. <laughs> I was like, in the womb, going to work every day with my mom and going to work shortly after my mom having me just, I've lived and breathed like recruitment and HR my whole life because it was a big part of like my mom's life. She was one of the few mothers within her group of people that were working and that were primary breadwinners. That's where I kind of like got my first introduction to HR and talent. And I actually joined a recruiting firm earlier on. I had dropped out of school and I owed my parents a ton of money as a result of my not taking my educational track as seriously as I probably should have in my first year. So I was working three jobs. I was working at a big popular retail I was working at the 407 ETR as a data entry specialist where I was basically taking manually. I was looking at license plates and dialing them in for about five to six hours a day. And then I was working as a receptionist slash recruiter at an employment agency. And I'd actually was uh, finally kind of made my way back into going back to school for marketing and advertising. But I fell in love with my role that I was doing part-time at this agency. And it was a really humbling experience for me because I was 18 when I was working at this agency. And I was meeting with people from all over the world, a lot of newcomers to Canada, that were looking to pursue a new life and build a new life for their family. And they've made a lot of sacrifices, you know, having worked as doctors, engineers, uh, surgeons, like you name it, like some of the most renowned and, and respected roles. These folks were coming from other parts of the world and they were open to and looking to work as a general laborer at like a big retailer, cutting boxes open for nine hours a day. And for me as like an 18 year old person, I just was blown away that education, regardless of where it happens, doesn't necessarily translate to Canada. I love hearing that story and I've loved watching your journey. I'd love to share and talk to you about another piece of your professional, and I'm guessing personal passion and mission, as well as it relates to your professional life. Your recent real explosion on, on social media and Instagram and becoming 
really quite a profound voice and leader for so many of us looking to learn. For listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, Avery, I'd love you to share the story. It's been a wild experience. And I mean, I was just jamming out on Canva one day thinking, oh, like this would be an interesting message to share as we embark on this like larger conversation around racism, institutional racism, systemic racism, and dismantling a lot of the systems that are in place that oppress us, certain groups of people and specifically black folks. And as someone that identifies as a black woman and as someone that works in the space where I do a lot of education around diversity, equity, and inclusion, what I found is that there's a gap in the education that's being shared right now. And if you were to look at it as a spectrum, right, on the one spectrum, we have like early stage, early to this journey learnings around bias, microaggressions, some of the subtle, I would say, kind of passable situations that come up, everyday acts of potential bias or racism or prejudice, things that you can live with, things that don't necessarily harm people entirely. They're not as brutal as some of the images and videos that we've been seeing. But in response to George Floyd's murder, what we found is that there's been a lot of emphasis on dismantling systemic racism. There's a lot of information and education that's been shared widely on Instagram, Twitter, blog posts, et cetera, et cetera, around you know defunding the police. And, and these are quite complex things to navigate and are really complex pieces of learning to both, I guess, embrace, but then also get really comfortable with. And I think that what I was seeing was, hey, why don't we just take baby steps? <laughs> why don't we start with you know some things that you just shouldn't say to black women? Why don't we start with you know what to say when you don't know what to say right now? Because we're throwing a lot of information people's way that they're very new to this learning journey and their head is spinning right now. So I think that that's where I was coming from. I was looking to like meet people where they are and I was trying to take it in a tongue-in-cheek kind of funny way because it's such a serious conversation. I found that People really enjoyed it. And there's some folks that have found it extremely funny. And there's some folks that aren't thrilled about me calling out the Karens of the world, so to speak. <laughs> so, <laughs> But I honestly, like I can say some of the most profound, and I've been, of course, doing as much learning and unlearning as I possibly can over the last number of months. I'm continuing my journey, which will be forever. But your mini guide for non-Black folks, which is on Instagram, and I encourage you all to go check it out if you're listening, was very, very helpful. Because as you say, sometimes the baby steps and literally sort of putting words out there as options for what people can say when we don't know what to say was super helpful. And I think that sometimes the notion of undertaking the whole journey at once or for people to think that they can understand systemic racism and anti-Black racism as a sprint versus a marathon is really difficult for folks and they don't know where to start. And let me ask you, you know, at this point in your journey and with the impact you've been having, how are you doing? I've gone through waves of emotions through all this. I mean, at first I was really angry and then I moved to feeling really sad and then I moved to feeling inspired. Like, okay, well, let's fix this. Let me educate people. Let me share my experiences with people. You know, people are listening. They want to learn more. I had folks reaching out to me. So I figured, why don't I share what I know about the experiences of Black people as a Black woman? I keep going through those waves and to be honest, I'm tired. I feel like I'm frustrated now and I've gotten to this permanent state of frustration. 
it's interesting when you start speaking, what I feel has happened is that it's okay to be black and exist as a black woman. There's a lot of people in my life that were totally fine with that. And I mean, and some people would say, argue that they don't see color, which we all know is problematic for various reasons. But I found that now as I've started talking openly about being a black woman and sharing my experiences as a black woman, sharing my experience as a biracial black woman, I've been met with a lot of frustration and criticism from people that are like some of the closest people I've had in my life, which has been really hard to manage. I didn't go on Instagram posting this thinking like some of the earlier posts and even all of my posts, like I go on it at Canva, I have fun. I'm posting about things that I think are important to talk about. It's not an overly serious thing that I'm doing, although I am ex- approaching super serious topics, but I wasn't looking to have 80,000 people following me overnight. I never in a million years thought that it would propel me into this point where all these folks are looking to me for like more information and to learn from me. But what I think happened is that there's this perception with people that are close to me that haven't necessarily heard me readily talk about this before from my personal life that are quite not okay with it. Like they find that I'm maybe either being passive aggressive about past situations. And oftentimes what I'm speaking about is, yeah, lived experiences, but it's not specifically targeted at a person that is a family member or, you know, a friend of my partners or something. I've been avoiding just like getting into the comments with people. I've been creating like a basically like a template of things that people can go to to learn. I'm not taking that on anymore, but I have gotten into some relatively uh, lengthy debates with people that I care about that I probably shouldn't care as much about. I hear you. And as you're evolving, I think the notion of self-care is super important. And how are you doing that? Like, what are you doing for yourself to re-energize and take space? It's something I think about. I'm taking a meditation teacher training right now. So I am really thinking about how you go in. And as you've become much more of a public figure and that energy is so palpable, how do you protect it? Yeah, I'm not doing a good job with that. If anyone has any suggestions, feel free to hit me up on Instagram or Twitter or send me like what you do. I've tried the self-care stuff, the baths, the face masks and everything. It's not working. I've gone for massages. I got a spin bike. Movement is good because it helps to release the endorphins that you need and release stress and all the things. But I'm having a really hard time sleeping. And and I think that there's a lot of guilt as well on my end because, for example, right now I have like six or seven posts that I drafted over the last you know month that I'd like to put out there, but there's like this fear now because I have people that have relatively big profiles that are following me now. And I have like, number one, the sense of guilt because I'm like, okay, I haven't posted and I need to post something or I need to share some more insights about this thing. Or I have all the content there and I haven't put it out there yet. But then there's the other aspect of it where I'm like, I'm policing what I put out there more because of the uh, frustration I've been met with by close friends and family members that have that access to me to share, hey, like it's enough now. Like, okay, like it's time for you to move on. Like, don't let this encompass like every part of your being. But I think that what they don't understand is that this has been my experience for all these years. It just hasn't been anything I've been talking about or sharing publicly. So I think that I just feel like a lot of guilt all the time about not meeting some of my own expectations and not, you know, showing up the way I was showing up a month ago. I appreciate your transparency and honesty around that. And, you know, two reflections on that. One is to, first of all, say thank you, right, for what you're doing and continue to do, even though it's hard, because you honestly have, I mean, for me, 
quietly and less quietly over the years have been an incredible inspiration, friend, and place to learn, but also what you've done to create space for other folks and to enable these conversations is very scary and hard and really important and really appreciated. So just know that in spite of, you know, the criticism that you receive. And also, Avery, I lovingly reflect to you to consider bringing the empathy to yourself that you bring to so many folks that you work with because bringing that self-love and your compassion that you have been operating as your authentic self and doing the absolute best that you can to be true to yourself and to put goodness into the world, you deserve just as much empathy and self-love as everybody you show it to. I appreciate that. I think that it's interesting. It's like when I was a kid, there are certain things I just wasn't afraid of because I didn't know any different right? So I wasn't afraid to like run up to a dog and pet it until like my sister was attacked once. So now I have like a bit of a fear of dogs, not entirely, but I'm cautious around them. And the same thing goes for other situations. When I was younger, I was almost like I was fearless. And I think that as you put yourself out there, oftentimes you open yourself up and you know this probably better than anyone. I do. And it's hard. It's really hard. It's been a real journey, honestly, Avery, to be able to come to a place where if you're going to put yourself out there, learning to be okay with the fact that some people get you and, and believe in you and see your goodness and some people don't. I always thought about how celebrities deal, and I'm not referring to myself as a celebrity, but anyone that has like any sort of public position where they're getting a lot of different criticism thrown their way, negative comments, et cetera, et cetera. Like I've seen this on Instagram and everything, and I, I never got it because people didn't care enough to share any sort of critiques because the things that I was posting about and sharing about were so superficial. But when you believe wholeheartedly in your gut that you're right about something or you know from lived experience says that something is not okay, it makes you feel so much more comfortable with sharing that opinion, regardless of who sees it, right? What's funny now, though, is that I feel more fear because I know the repercussions of saying these things. I've apologized to people just in the last week. I don't know why I'm apologizing. I'm just apologizing because they feel uncomfortable. Reflect on that. I mean, honestly, I'm having a very strong visual memory at this moment of a moment where I came to you as my friend having a similar difficult moment. I'll never forget it. I put out an op-ed on International Women's Day and, you know, I took a strong point of view. It was International Women's Day. So that was the focus of the piece. And someone had a strong point of view that it wasn't my opinion, wasn't the right opinion. And it was one comment out of, you know, 80,000 other people that loved what I had to say. I focused on the one that was disappointed in me and really had to go in very deep to bring empathy to myself to say, I'm doing the best I can. I can always learn and listen to the feedback because, you know, feedback sometimes has lots of lessons in it. But at the same time, you know, I'm just doing the best I can with where I am. I admire you deeply. You've lived through many hard things. And I often think that the resiliency and beauty of the layers of complexity that we can bring to this kind of work as humans is built through the surviving of the hard things. If you're willing to share a little bit, you know, I thought it was extremely courageous when I saw you speak for the first time publicly about your experience with sexual assault in the workplace, which is a very hard thing to talk about for anyone. How did you find the courage to share and, and how did you move forward through that? Because I think there was so much resiliency in how you dealt with that. 
I mean, it was definitely a really challenging thing for me to talk about, but I think that sharing my story was actually a part of my moving forward. I'm a very open person. I'm happy to basically share all the parts of my life. It's a, it's probably one of my best and worst qualities. <laughs> my mom always says that I just need to be less open with my time and with, you know, with my stories and with my experiences, et cetera, et cetera, because I am really and truly an open book and I'm happy to share all these experiences, especially when I know it's something that will help to make someone feel less alone and to to help someone feel more empowered. For me, I've dealt with different forms of abuse outside of the workplace. So I had always felt like the workplace was meant to be a safe space. And I don't know, as a woman, and I think that a lot of women can probably relate to this, when you experience different forms of harassment or assault outside of professional environment, you can almost make excuses for it, which is problematic in itself. It's something that I think for some people is a bit of a coping mechanism. But for me, if you're at a party or you find yourself in a bad relationship, which I've experienced, like these are things that they're less controlled and structured environments entirely. So you can kind of come to terms with it. But when I was assaulted at work, and as someone that works within the scope of an HR role and who contributes to building these systems uh, at workplaces that contribute to making a safer workplace and helps to guide people along how they can create an inclusive workplace for everyone and a safe workplace experience for everyone. I knew that there needed to be more work done in this space. And I think that for me, I was able to navigate that situation with a lot more strength than maybe the average individual, mainly because I am informed from an HR perspective. I know what the process looks like. You know, I know what happens when you go forward. So I was able to go forward to my COO at the time and the CEO to say, hey, this happened to me. I obviously broke down. It was words between tears and crying and, you know, little subtle kind of panic attacks. But I was able to kind of somewhat clearly say, this is where I'm at. This is how I feel. I know this is the process. I'm not going to move along with that process. I don't feel like we should launch a formal investigation because this is what happened. And not a lot of people have that opportunity. And a lot, a lot of organizations would actually support that. So you know, I was really supported and listened to and trusted. And most importantly, they believed me in my story. So I thought that it was important to kind of share with people, even when things are handled so perfectly, how they can still go wrong. Cause I still ended up having a mental breakdown and, and having to go on a medical leave as a result of it. I had this like massive crash and then I ended up leaving the workplace altogether. And I really haven't moved the same in a workplace since then. And I think it's one of the major contributors to the, one of the reasons why I'm now an entrepreneur and have my own business. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think profound to be able to speak and share that kind of traumatic lived experience. And I deeply admire your courage in sharing it. And I can relate to the emotional wounds that are left through having had that experience. And and not all of us have the courage that you do. So I'm super grateful that you've shared it. How did you find for folks listening that have sort of had such a traumatic or life-changing experience in this way that you've been able to heal from it? Do you have any thoughts or suggestions for folks? Yeah. So for me, it was art. It sounds really funny, but I was in a very low place. (laughs) I was on medical leave and I just had this urge to paint. And I said to my mom, I went home and kind of stayed with them at the time because I was not in a place where I could be on my own. And I just said to my mom, I really want to paint. I think I need to paint. And she was like, okay, let's go get some stuff. 
go paint, get canvases. And I just like kind of hurtled in and into my apartment at my mom's and dad's house. And I just was up at all hours of the night and was painting for like probably about three weeks straight. And I just poured all that energy out. It was the best form of therapy. I did everything. I went to Reiki. I went to do acupuncture. I spoke to several therapists and I wasn't able to truly unpack all of the frustration and the sadness and the pain that I'd experienced over the years. It wasn't, the experience at work was hard mainly because it triggered several experiences that had happened to me from the age of like 19 upwards to like 25. So I was reliving and revisiting a lot of experiences that I either didn't have the tools when I was younger to navigate and to explore, or I wasn't even aware that they were assault. And I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but I just created all this artwork and I poured myself into that. And it's interesting because I have some of those pieces still. A lot of the pieces, I actually posted one on Instagram. And what was interesting is a lot of people wanted to start buying them. I think I said to you once, I'd like to commission a piece from yeah. you a long time yeah. ago, three years ago. Yeah. It's funny because like, I thought at the time that I was painting because this was like a new thing I was doing. And I had gone to art school prior. I was, I've always been into like creative arts and stuff like that, but I'd never actually like, you know, really kind of had a vision and executed on it and created this series of paintings. But ever since I kind of moved through that, I have not painted since. So I think it's been three years since that experience now, almost three years. I haven't picked up a brush. I have loads of canvas, all the things I haven't done it. And I think that the art for me was my therapy. Recently, I've been really wanting to paint. Like I bought some new paints and stuff like that. So I think that maybe I'm going through another point where I need to release yeah, I love that. And you can put them in your new house. Let's talk about your new house. I saw you post it on your social. I'm delighted for you. Tell us about that house and what that meant to you. Oh my gosh, it was huge. So for me, I've always in my head, I don't know if I'm the only one. I don't think that this is just women that feel this way. But for me as a woman, I always had thought I was going to buy a house with my partner and we would split it even Stevens down the middle. And that was going to be my contribution. And it's interesting because like all these years, and even though I, I am in a relationship at the moment, I've been kind of saving, you know, money thinking, oh, you know, like when we're both ready, we'll buy this house together. And then I thought, you know, I don't know why I think that way. It was about a year ago that I was thinking, you know, I could do this on my own, you know, or give it a try, but it just felt so out of reach and so far away from what could be my reality. I went and looked at this place in particular. It was just a feeling. I was just like, this is it. And it's interesting because I came to Toronto. I live in Scotland. Like all of my stuff, all my belongings are in Scotland at the moment. I live there with my partner. Made that transition back in October of last year. And it doesn't feel that long ago. Do you remember we had like a coffee, a cocoa latte, and you were just yes. about to leave. And we had such a beautiful visit. And you were leaving the next day or two days later or something. I know. It's two days later. And it's just like time flies. But I... I came home to visit my parents and surprise them on a cruise. I've been stuck in Canada ever since with one suitcase, with all my cruise slash holiday wear, which is really funny. And as I've been here, I've just, again, like these things that are important to me have come into focus. My sister's having a baby. My brother is having twins coming. All this stuff is happening. So it's really kind of shifted what my partner and I plan 
our life to look like. So yeah, I bought the house and I bawled my eyes out when it happened. <laughs> well, it's a huge celebration, right, of all of the work. I'm also having such a clear memory for those folks that are listening that don't know. Avery also is a community builder and started an incredible community with Sunday Showers. Can you tell us a little bit about what the vision for Sunday showers was about because I feel we need a Sunday shower to recognize Avery's house. Yeah, we need a Sunday shower for like making it through 2020, to be honest. I think that everyone deserves a Sunday shower. This is a whole new type of life celebration. So true. <laughs> I have those moments too. I'll be like, I got through this week. I think I need a little present to celebrate that with yes, myself. Yes, yes. Sunday showers is a biz shower, a business shower to celebrate all the major professional accomplishments in a woman's life. It initially started from the idea that I think it's great that we celebrate all these marital type of related milestones as it relates to, you know, like getting married, having children, but we don't actually have anything that celebrates, you know, launching a business, getting a new job, or finally getting the promotion or getting your master's or getting your PhD. And these are huge milestones in women's lives. And I think that they deserve to be celebrated. And I don't think it's a totally radical thought, but it's funny whenever you see tweets, there's been a few that have been circulating lately. I think there was one that was like baby showers, but for businesses or for folks that just started a business and it had like went absolutely viral because it's just such a obscure concept. But as someone that started now two businesses and I've just recently bought a house, I could have totally used a little bit of money here and there from friends and family with like buying office supplies or buying a new laptop when mine broke down. Small, tiny things. We really don't support the people around us that are taking those steps. Yeah. And even the recognition of it. First of all, I will say like I had the great privilege of speaking and sharing a bit about my entrepreneurial journey at one of your early events. And it was joyful to share. It was inspiring for me because I created content that was sort of net new. I hadn't even really ever thought about my story in the way that I shared it prior to that event. And you know, just the love in the room, literally the love that was in the room, it was profound. And I remember how, you know, at that time, as you were just starting birthing, you know, the baby of that business and, and, and platform, how nervous you were. I remember how nervous you were and how beautifully you stood in your power. Honestly, when I watched you speak, I'll never forget it. And the transformation that, you know, as someone who's been cheering for you from the sidelines, it was powerful to watch it. And then I remember at the summit, Sunday Shower sold out within five seconds, literally five seconds of putting the summit online. Everybody wanted to be part of that community. So, you know, I don't know what your plans are for that community, but it's really been beautiful to watch it. And when you have the energy to bring it back, I'll be the first to show up. We've been seeing a lot of different kind of community uh, events. And for Sunday Showers, it really would be hard for us to do the experience that we offer and have offered in the past. Virtually, it's just not the same. You know, you walk around and people are hugging, they're crying. I mean, I relate to that because people always say, why didn't you move move the dial on the line? And the truth is we had conceptualized similar to you, like how could we pivot? And we had a whole plan around how to do it. But in my gut, it didn't offer that amazing delight joy, right? So it's like, sorry, no. And interestingly, what you're talking about in terms of the celebration of the building of and also you know, the reflecting on the loss of, right? I mean, Move the Dial being on pause for me, and I'm sure Sunday Showers, which you worked so hard to create and curate, going on pause, like, it's hard. 
The first year of Sunday showers was very scrappy. We were kind of like building as we went with it because we didn't know if there would be an appetite for it. We didn't know if people would show up. You have very little control, number one, of like who shows up to your events and how they show up and, and whether they'll show up again. But it was through the year and for five events, including the one with Move the Dial, which was fantastic, that we realized that this is a thing. And we had put formalized so many things. We had like a celebratory membership. We had all these things we built that we just basically had to say goodbye to. And I had actually invested quite a bit of upfront money financially into running those programs. And with the event space specifically, I just didn't feel comfortable taking that money away from those third-party vendors and everything that we had initially kind of like booked. I think that I'm looking forward to seeing where Sunday showers will grow or how it will grow over the next like few years. I'd imagine that once we move through COVID and it's safer to do so, we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming. But for now, we're all celebrating from afar and from home. <laughs> I love that. So I'm going to move into a few questions uh, crowdsourced from our audience to wrap because I could talk to you literally all day. Some questions from the audience. One, what is a book that has deeply influenced you? Ooh. Okay. So one of my favorite books is Obviously Awesome by April Dunford. Before that book, it was When Fish Fly. And When Fish Fly is a book about the fish market in Seattle. And it talks about how they became the best fish market in the world and how you can take the seemingly ordinary and make them extraordinary. You are a traveler. You travel the world. And there are so many beautiful photographs of you in incredible places. I'm going to ask you a really tough question. If you had to pick one place that is your favorite global destination, what is it, Avery? I love this question. Okay, I'm going to say New Zealand. Oh, I've not been to New Zealand. It's stunning. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's not kitschy or kind of this tacky travel experience. I spent three months there back in 2010 and 2011, and it was just like a life-changing experience. People are fantastic. It's rich in history. The food's amazing. You have all the different climates, and it's just gorgeous. And last... But certainly not least, you know, one person in your life who has literally inspired the beautiful creator that you have become. I'm going to say me. <laughs> Is that awful? <laughs> uh, no, it's awesome. And I totally celebrate that. I was going to say my mom, but I think that sometimes like I don't. I look at people that are doing really cool things and I don't know enough about their story or the journey. Like I really look at it as like the tip of the iceberg, right? We only ever see the highlight reel. But with me, like I know the shit that I've gone through. I know the trials. I know the dark moments where you're like alone in your apartment at like three o'clock in the morning and you're, you stick, you're like I stick to a problem or I tough through situations. You know, I don't know that about anyone else. And I think that if I ever had the opportunity to have that access to someone and to really kind of understand the nitty gritty details of the way that they approach life and the hardships that come of it, like building a business, like managing the things, like I would 100% maybe have someone else. But I think that knowing my own capabilities and knowing what I've been through and knowing how I've bounced back, that tends to be an inspiration that I pull from often. Well, I love that. And I am so inspired by you. And I love our friendship and value it. Reflecting on Avery's story is super inspiring. She is an entrepreneur in her soul. And she is created like few people I have ever seen. She puts her heart and her passion into making her vision a reality. 
I have loved watching her grow over the last few years. One of the things that I often talk about when I'm giving talks on being an entrepreneur is that the execution focus is just as important as having a big dream or vision. And that being an entrepreneur takes so much grit. It takes getting up when we fall down. Talking to Avery about how much joy she's experienced through the growth of Bloom, as well as through the impact she's had on social media in light of the Black Lives Matter movement and her perspective on it, both shows the power of having strong conviction and having a dream and vision and how much resiliency it takes as we are navigating this moment in time where in light of George Floyd's brutal murder and that of so many others, we have been awakened as a society to the need to treat our anti-Black racism work as a forever piece of work. In addition to understanding the systemic challenges and how to overcome those challenges as a society, as individuals, we all have the opportunity to take little steps. And some of the messages that have resonated so powerfully that Avery has shared around what we can even say as non-Black folks, for example, to our Black friends is so powerful because those little tiny steps in terms of growth on our journeys and doing our part to support our friends and our community, I think are just as important as the very big steps we have to take to understand, to learn and unlearn. Thank you for listening to Joyful Sundays the podcast where I have truly inspiring conversations about how to become your best self. If you like this episode, support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating, and a comment. I'm your host, Jody Kovitz. See you next time on Joyful Sundays.